Welcome. This is the Hashtag STR Ask podcast with Greg Kokel, and I'm Amy Hall. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Hi, Greg. All right. Um, I have some questions. I have a few questions. They might not take as long as the other ones. I All thought right. it might be fun to get through well, a that's few That's what people here. say after an event. They say, oh, I just have a short question. I said, the questions are always short. It's <laughs> the answers that are long. Yeah. That's true. All right. This first one comes from Matchless M., if a spouse deconverts and becomes a progressive, quote, Christian, is that grounds for separation or divorce? Um, well, on my reading of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, no. And because it appears that Paul addresses that specifically, and that is if you have a, uh, a non-Christian spouse, or, uh, it, you, you, and I, I think the circumstance he was facing is when you have one spouse that becomes a Christian, because this is early on, remember, and um, and the spouse is not a Christian. Now, you've got, obviously, a mixed bag there. You've got an unequally yoked circumstance of people who are already married. Paul says, no, you don't need to get divorced unless if the non-believer chooses to leave. And if the non-believer chooses to to leave, then the Christian is not under compulsion, something like that, his wording. And I take that to mean that they are no longer bound. The non-believer goes, God's called us to peace. The non-believer leaves for the reasons, for spiritual reasons, presumably, and therefore then, okay, then, then they're gone. And I think that a person in that circumstance has the freedom before God to remarry without any difficulty. I think that parallel would be was what is just suggested, that uh, if the one spouse becomes a non-Christian or loses their testimony, however you want to characterize it, you know, uh, and I think progressive Christianity would be an example of that, uh, because they they disavow virtually everything that is central to the gospel, um, then you're dealing with a non-Christian Christian. Matchup, and in that case, uh, there's no. I I don't think there's no. In, in, it's the right word. Um, requirement or uh, there's no. There's spe- no grounds. There's I don't know if grounds is the right word, but it isn't like he's just saying you don't have to divorce them, and we can read the exact wording. Maybe I should go there just for clarification. But if the non-believer leaves, well, then the believer is not under compulsion. Um, so. Uh, maybe some would interpret that as grounds for divorce, but um, here it is. Um, I'm sorry. Must I say, Lord, the men? Um, okay, if okay, verse twelve. Um, and then here Paul gives his opinion. His first opinion was something that Jesus taught on, and the second opinion is not what something Jesus taught on. People misunderstand that. To the rest, I say, not the Lord, I say. Now, he's not saying he's not inspired. He's just saying Jesus didn't speak on this because he had referred to Jesus' command just before that. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. It's pretty strong. And a, uh, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, not entirely sure what he means by that, but is sanct- I'll just read his words, through his wife, 
In other words, there's a, there is a salutary spiritual impact because one is believing. Minimally, that's what he means. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise her children are unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, and that's another kind of cryptic thing. But the point is, I mean, minimally, what he's saying there is if you have one believer in the family, you have a salutary spiritual effect on the children. Okay, but there's the answer to the question. Mm-hmm. If one is an unbeliever and consents to stay, do not divorce that person. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty explicit there. Yeah. All right, here's a question from Molly S.E. Why do non-Christians say the Lord's name in vain? Well, I know what she's referring to. I'm not sure if using Jesus' name or God's name in an irreverent manner is precisely what the Scripture, the, the law, refers to. But in, in any event, that's not the question. Uh, I think it's wrong in any event for a, for a number of reasons. But why do they do that? Um, I actually think they're socialized to do that for the most part. I'm not sure how this whole thing started, but why did people say, gosh, dang, who invented those words? Or darn it, or ding, dang, or crud, or, you know, any kind, any any words that people use as an expression of frustration, anger, hostility, surprise, or whatever. These are just things that come up, you know, in culture. Now, it does seem that some of these words, like dang it, is a variation of damn it, and people don't want to say damn it because that refers to spiritual things, and so out of respect that they say dang it, you know, and so some of these are, are variations. And so, but how did those original spiritual terms get into the vocabulary in the first place? That's a good question, and I don't know. Um, it might be because when you think about just, this isn't the Lord's name, but it is part of, it is a kind of spiritual reference when people say, damn it, and they are thinking about, they originally are thinking about, here's what damning involves, and I want that to happen to them. So it's a very unkind, uncharitable thing to say. But then it starts taking on this its own life as just an expletive, and people don't mean that when they're using it. They're just, you know, getting off steam in an inappropriate kind of fashion. It's hard to know about the etymology. I don't know if you have any well, I think understanding I that. think there's something transgressive about using a holy word in an unholy way. Right. So I I think that's how it starts. I think um, if somebody wants to be rude or they want to even create a bad word, they want to shock people. Then you would take something that's beautiful or sacred and you would spit on it. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, you you would you would use it in a in an angry way. I think that's how this happens. I think people are are simply transgressing against the sacred. Mm-hmm. I think that's how it starts. I, how much people are doing that when they do it now? Probably a lot of it's habit now, yeah. but maybe not all of it. You know, there there is something about our our rebellion and people's desire to shock by transgressing the boundaries right. of what's good and sacred. Yeah. I think is maybe playing a part well, in this. Yeah, there, I mean, you also have people who who will say Jesus Christ in an inappropriate way, but they don't say, oh, Gautama Buddha. You know, it doesn't even make sense to say it. Why, why choose that rather than the other? And and uh, 
there maybe there's another spiritual dimension that's involved in this. That could be, or it could be in those cultures where those things are sacred. There might be words that are related to that no, there it could be. that I don't even know about. Oh, well, I was in Thailand. I never heard anybody say that. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, it could definitely be something deeper spiritually. Mm-hmm. But they, they may have sacred things that they mock or or denigrate when they use bad language. I don't know. I mean, I guess you would probably know if you were there, but maybe not. Well, yeah, it's like I, if I had been there for 20 years and was really tied in, I'd be able to notice that yeah. I was there seven months. And so I can't. But it, it strikes me, though, that just say Thailand, for example, uh, that the people's their, their religious sensibilities and all these things, they were very committed to and people would not there were all kinds of little patterns in everyday life that were meant to reflect the sanctity of what they viewed as holy. How you use your feet, where you place your hands, uh, you know, there's, if there was an image of the king or a Buddha, it was always up and up really high right by the ceiling, because high was holy and low was not. And so, you you don't mess with that stuff, you know. Even if a tourist messed with anything like that, they had a tourist once that was had his picture taken. This is before digital, so you had to get your pictures developed. And he sat on a Buddha idol, and he was sitting on the head of Buddha. The head is the most sacred place, and his bottom and his is on the head, and his feet are the filthiest thing dangling in the Buddha's face, and they're smiling for a tourist picture. When they produced those pictures, they called the authorities and they they ran them right out of the country. So, in you know, I'm not sure. It, it and certainly in that case, there's a lot more sensibility. You know, in Muslim countries, you're not going to mess with anything holy because that could get you killed. You know, it it might be because of the latitude we have in the West. You know, uh, but um, that makes makes it easy to make fun of sacred things uh, or not. I'm not sure. It might be because of the focus on Christianity. It could be too. I mean, I this has probably increased over time. Maybe there were fewer people doing this back when the culture held these things in more honor. But as we rebel, you see more and more of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's possible. Maybe. All right, here's an interesting one, Greg. This one comes from David. Yeah, all the rest are kind of really boring. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we finally got an interesting one. Amy. Thanks for saying that. Do you believe the sower deliberately and intentionally sowed seed upon the hard ground or into thorns and weeds, or were those seeds an effort to fully cover the good soil? Um, I think that that's a misread of the parable. Uh, Parables, characteristically, uh, is a a genre, they're a, a style of writing, and they're meant to do something particular. Um, it it's a mistake to try to strain at at all the details, since parables as a genre are meant to make general points. And like any illustration, you choose any illustration that you give for any particular thing, and it turns out if you press the illustration too far, it's going to break down. So I don't think that's what that Jesus didn't tell the parable with those details for that purpose. The purpose that Jesus told the parable for was what he explained to the disciples privately after the parable, okay? And he gave some very particular things in there um, to to kind of try to divine what was in the mind of the sower as he scattered on hard ground versus whatever. 
I mean, my take is that the sower, and I wrote a, a small piece about this once, the sower just scattered the seed recklessly. The sower was just throwing the seed. This is just what they do. And the, so the seed falls here, there, and wherever, okay? And, uh, and there's a sense in which you might want to say we are prejudging where the seed we sow is going to go. Uh, oh, that guy's too close. He won't listen or whatever, you know. Uh, it's, I'll give you a little bit of illustration. So three nights ago, I was at a Lazy Dog restaurant because I was in Denver, and my my host, pastor, and I were having dinner, and he teaches tactics, and I was teaching the next day tactics at their church, and we're talking together. We're making small talk with the waiter, and we know the neighbor's waiter's name. His name is Colby. And we're carrying on and just creating a warm, friendly atmosphere. And then a, the pastor says, by the way, Colby, I don't know anything about your own spiritual life, but do you have a church that you go to? As a question, all right? Simple kind of question. Now, some people might thought, might, might be thinking, oh, you know, what are the, this is some restaurant. This guy's such and so my prejudge or whatever and say, no, now, I'm not going to say anything because he's probably hard ground. I'll tell you what happened. Colby paused and he said, I'm going to take that as a sign. Why? Because the last four Saturday nights, I had Christians at my table that invited me to church. Now, of course, the pastor guy didn't know, David, he didn't know. I didn't know. And we could have prejudged the circumstances. Oh, these guys aren't interested. You know, they're not at church. People come to church, at least now we know what they're, they're interested, okay? What was he doing? He was scattering the seed recklessly, so to speak. He's just tossing it out there with a question. Great tactical approach. And then he said, well, no pressure, no, no big deal. It was a friendly atmosphere. And, and, but unwittingly, he discovered that by taking this simple step, he was stepping into a design of God in the life of Colby the waiter. And we don't know where it's going to go, but uh, Colby got us an address and email asked for all of this stuff. Well, tell me where it's at, what the times are. And then he left his email address, the pastor did, and, and he said, hey, yeah, you, you want to sit down for coffee sometime? No worries. We could just get together. Yes, no pressure. That's what he said. No pressure. That's great. So so I think the point, if you want to make a broad application of the sower, the sower is just throwing a seed out. He's not prejudging. What Jesus is talking about is the kind of person that responds. And it's interesting, in the Ma- Matthew's version of that, Jesus mentions that the first, the hard ground, it isn't like their hearts are their hearts are hard. He says that which has been sown in their heart gets snatched away because they don't understand it. They do not understand it, and therefore it's easy for the devil to take it out. That which has been sown in their hearts, that's the way Jesus put it, take it out or sow it inside them. And then the fourth, the one that bears fruit 30, 60, 100-fold, they hear the word and they understand it, which means this is a great case for us slowing down and the the whole tactical approach, asking questions and making sure that we're not just making Christian noise at them, but we are actually engaging them in a way that they can understand mm-hmm. it. All right, let's let's take another question about okay. a parable here. This one comes from E. Fudd. In Matthew 25, 1 through 13, are the foolish virgins faux believers or non-believers in the parable? What does it mean to be ready? Is it a work? 
Yeah, that's 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 another one of those parables that are, are sometimes somewhat mystical or mystifying, and um, and sometimes you can okay, I gotta get this, but I'm not sure about that, and and frankly, that's true for me too. Um, parables are a means of communicating a main thing, so there's a main thing there. We don't want to go too far with it and maybe draw the wrong conclusions, but even so, some of them are a little mystifying. Jesus clarified in many cases with his disciples in private what he meant by these things, because the disciples were mystified too, but um, but some he didn't. And as far as I can tell with this one, there's no clarification here. Um, oil is a common metaphor in Scripture for the Holy Spirit. So, it and keep in mind the cultural context, you have Jews— all these Jewish people following Judaism, but you have those who are who are the, the, the genuinely and appropriately pietistic of, of of Israel, and we have examples of that. We have Joseph of Arimathea. We have Nicodemus. We have um, in in the birth narratives. We have uh, when Jesus is uh, goes to the temple, and we have those two encounters there. Um, so you, you, Zacharias and, and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. So you have you have those people that are part of the commonwealth that have a genuine heart towards Christ, towards God, true believers, so to speak, in the Old Testament uh, manner. And then you have a lot of people that are going through a lot of the motions, and and they're de- they're whitewashed tombs. They look great, but they have dead men's bones inside. So you have both categories, and I think. Remember, that's the broader context here. And so when you talk about the virgins and the virgins are there, and some have oil and some do not, to me, that's pretty straightforward. Some have the Holy Spirit and some do not. And so when it's ready, when it's time for the moment, when the wedding happens and there's eschatological elements in view here, that is the return of Christ and the 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 uh, wedding supper, the lamb and the church, etc., and, and some don't have the spirit because they don't have the oil. Then they go out and get their oil; they're gone, and then the doors are closed and left behind. And I think this, uh, and again, just speaking broadly here, it's uh, the metaphor or the to- the um, analog of oil to the Holy Spirit. I think is very obvious here, and so therefore, the, we have non-believers who are still part of the group, who are not going to be included because they don't have what is necessary, and that is the Spirit. And I think— That makes sense? Yeah. So if you go back just a little bit before this, you see— Give me your verses here, Matthew. So in Matthew 24, he's talking about how he's going to come back. Right. And his his big point here is just, you need to be ready. So here's what he says— uh, starting in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. In other words, he's making the point here that people were not listening to the message. They were not listening to the warning. They were not turning to God. They were continuing along their own way like they always did, and they just ignored what they should have been doing, which is 
listening to God's message and turning to God. So I think that's the, that's the overall thing he's trying to get across here. So he goes on to say, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Mm -hmm. And he gives the example of the faithful and sensible slave. Don't just keep going along in your, in continuing to beat your, your slaves or, or, or whatever it is you're doing wrong just because you don't know when he's coming. Because your master's not there. <laughs> because he's not there, right. Yeah, right. And so, because he could walk in any moment kind And of so, thing. yes. And so that's the first illustration he gives. And then he gives another illustration, and this is the one of the ten virgins. And again, the idea is simply they they were not ready for the coming of, their, of the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. I think that's the simple message he's giving. And if you go back, like I said, the way you get ready is you heed the message and right. you turn to God. The uh, the next parable, verse fourteen of starting in verse fourteen of chapter twenty five, is the parable of the talents, and in verse thirty one of that chapter, then the judgment section. Uh, I mean, it's, in my Bible, it's nicely headed, so you can see these things. You know, perilous times coming, Matthew twenty four. Um, be ready for his coming, Matthew twenty four forty two, and following parable of the virgins twenty five one, and following parable of the talents fourteen, and following, and then judgment. 31 and following in chapter 25. So you, you, there is, you look at the big picture and you see this flow of things, and it's the conjoining of these these different parables that kind of say the same thing in lots of different mm-hmm. ways. So I don't think there's a, an exact one-to-one reference for everything in the parables. The simple idea is be ready for the return. Don't just keep going on your way, ignoring what's about to happen. Because you don't know when it will happen. But, but readiness is faithfulness to the king who is going to return. Mm-hmm. That's what readiness is. And so it might be characterized, I mean, faithfulness, because you are trusting in him, you are regenerate, and you're living an honorable life in service to him until he comes. And all of that is captured in these parables. All right. Well, thank you for your questions. We we got through four today, Greg. Right. It, it might be a record. <laughs> If you'd like to give us your question, go on Twitter and send us your question with the hashtag STRask, or you can go to our website at str.org. Just look for the hashtag STRask podcast, and there'll be a link at the top of the page for that podcast that will take you directly to where you can give us a question. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 